This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. Tonight, for our 175th episode, as we do with every 25 episodes, we discuss one of the major movies yet on our big list with 2001, A Space Odyssey from 1968, directed and written by Stanley Kubrick, co-written by Arthur C. Clarke, starring Keir DeLea as Dr. David Bowman, Gary Lockwood as Dr. Frank Poole, William Sylvester as Dr. Heywood Floyd, Daniel Richter as Moonwatcher, Leonard Rossiter as Dr. Andre Smyslov, Margaret Tyzak as Elena, Robert Beatty as Dr. Ralph Halverson, Sean Sullivan as Dr. Roy Michaels, and Douglas Rain as the voice of the HAL 9000. Recognition for this movie? 2001 A Space Odyssey was released on April 3rd, 1968. It celebrated its 55th anniversary earlier this year. Upon release, 2001 polarized critical opinion, receiving both praise and derision, with many New York-based critics being especially harsh. Kubrick called them dogmatically aesthetic and materialistic and earthbound. Some critics viewed the original 161-minute cut shown at premieres in Washington, D.C., New York, and Los Angeles. Kier DeLea says that during the New York premiere, 250 people walked out, and in L.A., Rock Hudson not only left early, but was heard to mutter, What is this bullshit? Will someone please tell me what the hell this is about? But a few months into the release, they realized a lot of people were watching it while smoking funny cigarettes. Someone in San Francisco even ran right through the screen, screaming, It's God! So they came up with a new poster that said, 2001, The Ultimate Trip. The movie was not a financial success at first. MGM was planning to pull it back from theaters but several theater owners persuaded them to keep showing the film. Many owners noticed increasing numbers of young adults attending the film. They were especially enthusiastic about watching the Stargate sequence under the influence of psychedelic drugs. This helped the film to become a financial success. 2001 would go on to be nominated for four Academy Awards, including Best Director for Kubrick, Original Screenplay for Kubrick and Clark, Art Direction, and it won for Visual Effects for Kubrick. 2001 was ranked 15th on the American Film Institute's 2007 100 Years 100 Movies list, and it was 22nd in the 1998 original list. It was number 40 on its 100 Years 100 Thrills, was included on its 100 Years 100 Quotes with number 78, Open the Pod Bay Doors, Hal, and Hal 9000 was the number 13 villain in 100 Years 100 Heroes and Villains. The film was also number 47 on AFI's 100 Years 100 Cheers and the number one science fiction film on AFI's 10 Top 10. 2001 A Space Odyssey is widely regarded as among the greatest and most influential films ever made. It is considered one of the major artistic works of the 20th century, with many critics and filmmakers considering it Kubrick's masterpiece. In the 1980s, critic David Demby compared Kubrick to the monolith from 2001, calling him a force of supernatural intelligence appearing at great intervals amid high-pitched shrieks who gives the world a violent kick up the next rung of the evolutionary ladder. By the start of the 21st century, 2001 had become recognized as among the best films ever made 
by such sources as the British Film Institute. The Village Voice ranked the film at number 11 in its top 250 best films of the century list in 1999, based on a poll of critics. In January 2002, the film was included on the list of the top 100 essential films of all time by the National Society of Film Critics. Sight and Sound Magazine ranked the film 12th in its greatest films of all time list in 1982, 10th in 1992, and 6th in the top 10 films of all time in 2002, 2012, and 2022 Critics Polls editions. It also tied for 2nd and 1st place in the magazine's 2012 and 2022 Director's Polls, respectively. The film was voted number 43 on the list of 100 Greatest Films by prominent French magazine Cahiers du Cinema in 2008. In 2010, The Guardian named it the best sci-fi and fantasy film of all time. The film ranked 4th in BBC's 2015 list of the 100 Greatest American Films. In 2010, it was named the greatest film of all time by the Moving Arts Film Journal. In 1991, it was selected for preservation by the United States Library of Congress in the National Film Registry. The influence of 2001 on subsequent filmmakers is considerable. Steven Spielberg, George Lucas, and others, including many special effects technicians, discuss the impact the film has had on them in a featurette titled Standing on the Shoulders of Kubrick, The Legacy of 2001, included in the 2007 DVD release of the film. Spielberg calls it his film generation's Big Bang, while Lucas says it was highly inspirational, calling Kubrick the filmmaker's filmmaker. Director Martin Scorsese is listed as one of his favorite films of all time. Sidney Pollack called it groundbreaking, and William Friedkin says 2001 is the grandfather of all such films. At the 2007 Venice Film Festival, director Ridley Scott said he believed 2001 was the unbeatable film that in a sense killed the science fiction genre. Similarly, film critic Michael Cement In his essay, Odyssey of Stanley Kubrick, wrote, Kubrick has conceived a film which in one stroke has made the whole science fiction cinema obsolete. Others credit 2001 with opening up a market for films such as Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Alien, Blade Runner, Contact, and Interstellar, proving that big-budget serious science fiction films can be commercially successful, and establishing the sci-fi blockbuster as a Hollywood staple. Science Magazine discovers blogger Stephen Cass, discussing the film's considerable impact on subsequent science fiction, writes that the balletic spacecraft scenes set to sweeping classical music, the tarantula soft tones of HAL 9000, and the ultimate alien artifact, the monolith, have all become enduring cultural icons in their own right. 2001 A Space Odyssey currently holds a 92% among critics on Rotten Tomatoes, an 84 score on Metacritic, and a 4.3 out of 5 on Letterboxd. So as we do every week, Dad, what is your relationship to this film? I watched it with you one time, and then I watched it again for the show. That's the extent of it. I'm aware of it. Didn't watch too much of it before. Never tried to even watch it. So this is only my second time viewing as well. I watched it once when I was trying to check off all of the AFI Top 100 films from both lists. Obviously, I've known that this is a film of significance and reverence for a long time, but it was not one that I necessarily felt I needed to seek out until such time as I was probably of age to really receive this film. It's got a lot of adult themes. I think it would be boring to the general public without the possession of psychedelic drugs, apparently. And um, I really do think that this is something made primarily for film fans, filmmakers, 
people who enjoy the arts as opposed to just truly to be entertained. I think there are entertaining things within this, but there are so many stretches without a significant amount of sound, um, as obviously the vacuum of space allows, that uh, I, I do think someone, unless they were in a captive audience in a theater, might get lost. So what do you think the movie's about then? <laughs> I, the best I can come up with is, is it's man's development from primate to advanced space. And that's about it. I mean, I, I, I mean, we're talking about the potential here of, of artificial intelligence destroying man. Okay. I don't know. So the co-writer and the writer of the original piece behind the movie, uh, Arthur C. Clarke, if you understand 2001 completely, we failed. We wanted to raise far more questions than we answered. Well, they accomplished that. Now, he did later express some concern that the film was too hard to follow and explain things more fully in the novelization and subsequent sequels. But yes, I think there was a level of obfuscation that was apparent within the film. Especially the ending, I think, has been tripping people up for a long time. I, I remember the first time watching it. That's the thing that really stuck out in my mind. Not to kind of upend my potential uh, indelible moment already, but basically the, the last act is the one people get the most hung up on. Uh, okay. I can understand that, I guess. And what is there, like 10 minutes of just black nothingness with music behind it? Mm, something like that, yeah. So it, it's definitely an artistic film as compared some of the other stuff we've discussed on the show. Now, this is only the third Kubrick film that we have discussed. I've only seen five of them. I've seen this one. I have seen Clockwork, excuse me, six, Clockwork Orange. I have seen The Shining now. I've seen Full Metal Jacket. I've seen Spartacus, Dr. Strangelove, and this. So it's hard for me to quantify all of them because I haven't seen The Killers, or is it The Killing? I guess it's The Killing. I haven't seen Eyes Wide Shut. I haven't seen Barry Lyndon. So it's hard for me. I haven't seen Paths of Glory. So it's hard for me to completely say for sure. But I think the general consensus is this is Kubrick's best film. Okay. Well, I don't know. I mean, it's the one that he's most noted for and has the largest amount of variety or notoriety for and the one that the critics all go gaga over, I, I like, I like uh, at least two of his other films more, um, Doctor Strange Love, and Clockwork Orange, and Clockwork Orange. So you don't have The Shining over this? No, because I don't know. I think it was him trying to do a. Or, I mean, it's a good film, but it's not nearly the same level. As far as, I mean, he tried to make his jump into the horror genre, but I'm not, I'm not sure if it accomplished what it wanted. Well, no need to give us any more interlude. Let's get a plot summary. Do you have one ready for us? Yes. 2001 A Space Odyssey is a visionary science fiction film directed by Stanley Kubrick and based on a story co-written by Arthur C. Clarke. 
Released in 1968, the film is an epic exploration of human evolution, artificial intelligence, and extraterrestrial encounters. The story begins during prehistoric times when a mysterious black monolith appears to a group of primitive hominids, triggering a significant shift in their cognitive abilities. Millennia later, in the year 2001, a similar monolith is discovered on the moon's surface, buried beneath the lunar soil. Upon excavation, the monolith emits a powerful radio signal towards Jupiter. In response to the signal, a manned mission is launched aboard the spacecraft Discovery 1, led by Dr. David Bauman and Dr. Frank Poole, along with three other astronauts in hibernation. The onboard computer, HAL 9000, an advanced artificial intelligence system, assists the crew throughout their mission. As the spacecraft nears Jupiter, tension arises as HAL begins to show signs of malfunctioning and unpredictable behavior. Thank you. Did you know? According to Douglas Trumbull, the total footage shot was some 200 times the final length of the film. Did you know? According to Sir Arthur C. Clarke, Stanley Kubrick wanted to get an insurance policy from Lloyd's of London to protect himself against losses in the event that extraterrestrial intelligence was discovered before the movie was released. Lloyd's refused. Carl Sagan commented, In the mid-1960s, there was no search being performed for extraterrestrial intelligence, and the chances of accidentally stumbling on extraterrestrial intelligence in a few years period was extremely small. Lloyds of London miss a good bet. And with that, we will take our first break, and we'll be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, next week, for our 176th episode, we discuss the original superhero film with Superman, the movie, from 1978, celebrating its 45th birthday this year. Directed by Richard Donner, written by Mario Puzo, David Newman, Leslie Newman, and Robert Benton. Music by John Williams, starring Christopher Reeve, Gene Hackman, Marlon Brando, Margot Kidder, and Ned Beatty. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Dad, best performance is up. Who do you have down? Kubrick. I think it's a given with this one. There are not a lot of other additional performances outside of his, and given that he was credited with the visual direction and with part of the writing, with most of the cinematography, and the vision of how all of this was going to be done. And given his rather meticulous nature that is often attributed to him, I just can't see my way towards anyone else being anywhere close to best performance for this film. He was so involved, it's he overshadows everything. I almost think he picked actors without any knowledge or real prestige so that they didn't outshine his performance as director. Be interesting, because a lot of his other films are with some notable actors of the time. Yeah. I mean, Matthew Modine for Full Metal Jacket, Jack Nicholson for The Shining, Ryan O'Neill for Barry Lyndon, Peter Sellers for Dr. Strangelove. Yeah. Not to mention Kirk Douglas for Spartacus. (laughs) Yeah, okay. And Paths of Glory. True. Very true. So this is going to be an interesting one. 
I had a hard time coming up with best secondary performance on this. I ended up going with Douglas Rain as the voice of HAL 9000, because even within a very monotone range, he creates a very distinct, unique, and memorable character. I didn't think that there were a lot of people that could be nominated for this one, so I went with what I thought was probably the next closest thing as far as notable performances in this film. Okay. I went with, uh, it's Kerr Dulia. Kerr Dulia. I don't know the actual pronunciation of his last name. <laughs> Simply because he was the most prolific of the actors within the film. I mean, he had the most screen time. He had to do a lot of different aspects of the film and had to have a bigger range. And he'll be forever known as Dave. Yes. So most charismatic, what do you have? Uh, Alex North. Interesting, okay. Yes, the composer. Because... So there was a credited composer, because I had a hard time finding that one. Well, that's who was credited for it. The music from the thing is probably as uh, memorable as the fact of the movie. Well, and that was where I went to, was the score. I think the score ends up enhancing the film and really creating the backdrop for most of the action, particularly in space. As I mentioned before, in the vacuum of space, it's completely and 100% silent. So you had to have something that would create these feelings and emotions, and it, it really sticks out because you get this grandiosity to space in a time where we weren't even on the moon yet. And it allows us to kind of escape and be in a completely different universe than our own. And most of those musical cues have been reborrowed and reused so many times at this point that I don't know if you know the average person knows that they were popularized originally by this film, <laughs> but they probably know certain cues from the film, i.e. Barbie at the beginning of its movie has a very direct homage to this film. So best scene for a two and a half hour film, I only have six down. A lot of these are kind of scenes that are long, but aren't necessarily like it was not a lot of good quick scenes or a lot of dialogue in a particular moment or not. It was just there's a little bit of action here. And so I'll put a scene around it. And in between, we're going to have some impressive visuals and a lot of space stuff and some great music. And that's just going to be the film. So I had Dawn of Man, which kind of takes care of that whole first sequence. I had Monolith on the Moon, which I'm really not even going to extend it to the couple of discussions that Floyd has. The one with the group of people and then the one where he's kind of giving the opening to that conference of people. Yeah. I have Mistrust of Hal when they've kind of identified that Hal could be breaking down. What I will nickname as Pod Bay Doors which is the disabling eventually of Hal after he kills the one astronaut and tries to kick out the other. I have Through the Looking Glass, which is probably going to be your least favorite scene. And I have the final moments where he's in that bedroom and kind of gets into the consciousness of the universe or whatever that final form is as he's looking down on Earth. Out of these, what do you think is the best scene? Well, I like where Hal takes control of the um, 
of the situation kills so the pod bay doors yeah yeah it kills the three hibernating astronauts as well he is going to take over because he believes his calculations are correct and that's what's going to hold the um, mission in place well not only do i find that to be a significant moment in the film and really one of the great I shouldn't say action, but dramatic sequences in the film where there's a lot of tension is what Dave is going to do to try and get back into the ship and how he's going to disable Hal and Hal basically pleading with Dave not to disable him as he's shutting down his circuits. And then the song that he's singing is so juvenile and elementary, but at the same time, it's kind of haunting. Yeah. So I I think that's, probably not only the best scene to me it's probably my favorite scene of the movie it's where i actually felt that there was a lot of the action of the movie really happening in real time i agree i mean there there wasn't a whole lot out of this that i thought was uh notable let's put it that way there was a lot of stuff that was visual or tied to the the score and artistic but okay so as far as uh, indelible moments go, I kind of already ruined mine. But yeah, the last like scene where he's in that Baroque bedroom with the floor lit and then somehow becomes this like fetus overlooking the earth has always stuck out to me. Whether you even want to include through the looking glass as part of that, where it's looking like a laser show from the 70s from Pink Floyd. <laughs> There was no giant pig flying overhead. Fair enough. But yeah, to me, that's the most indelible part of this entire film is that last half an hour. Uh, For me, it's the fucking opening. I mean, you're sitting there and you're going, what the fuck is this? I mean, the apes jumping around and... (laughs) I mean, it made no sense. It was like, you're like 15 minutes in before you finally figure out, oh, they're supposedly evolving. Okay, okay, that's fine. Most indelible, because that's always what I remember. Like, what is this? I can just see myself (laughs) green with Rock Hudson. Uh, I can see you doing that, too, exactly verbatim. Yeah. What the fuck is this shit? (laughs) Uh, All right. So let's take another break, and we'll be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, releasing in the early part of this August, friend of the show Adam Hitchcock of the Streaming Circuit Podcast and I are back with our monthly special series on the Marvel Cinematic Universe, where we will be discussing each film from the original Iron Man up through Avengers Endgame. The first half of each show will be on his feed, and the second half we will apply the Stan Lee rubric to each film to determine the greatest Marvel film of all time. This month we're covering Thor from 2011. Don't miss out. Make sure you are subscribed to both feeds to get these episodes. Dad, do we have anyone to remember this week? Yes. Sinead O'Connor, 56, Irish singer. Nothing compares to you. Songwriter from Mandinga and The Emperor's New Clothes. Grammy winner in 1991. Randy Meisner, one of the founding members of the Eagles, and was also in Poco. Hall of Fame musician and songwriter. 
Inga Longre, 95, Swedish actress. The Seventh Seal, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, and Crisis. Inga Swenson, American actress. She was in Benson, The Miracle Worker, Advice and Consent, a two-time Tony nominee for 110 in the Shade and Baker Street. Angus Cloud, 25, American actor, Euphoria, North Hollywood, and The Line. And lastly, Paul Rubens, also known as Pee Wee Herman, American actor, was in Pee Wee's Playhouse and The Nightmare Before Christmas, as well as Blow. Yeah, it was rather sudden that uh, Angus Cloud passed away, given that I think they're supposed to be in production or were supposed to be in production on Euphoria Season 3, and he's a fairly integral part of that particular program. That would be another one where I think if you could make it past the first episode, you might be able to get into it, but the first episode, you're going to have so many WTFs dropped that uh, I just can't see you making it through that. (laughs) (laughs) Particularly because you're so removed from current teen culture. But that being said, I, I know that the outpouring online for obviously our two musicians, given that the Eagles have such a high status among rock music of the 1970s and such, obviously the difficulties that Sinead O'Connor had during her lifetime and kind of her untimely demise has raised some additional specter on that. But I have seen only positive things for about the last four or five days I think it's been four or five days on Paul Rubens and particularly what Pee Wee Herman kind of meant to the generation just ahead of me, or at least the decade just ahead of me and kind of how he shaped a lot of their humor senses, how much they enjoyed Pee Wee's playhouse and just all of that that was involved. It was a little beyond my time. So it was not something that connected with me personally, but uh, I know that uh, unfortunately this week, We had a lot of people that passed away that have some awfully intimate connections with ourselves and with the audience. And so we commemorate all of them here with a moment of silence in their honor. Thank you. Best lines. I only have three. Hal, I am putting myself to the fullest possible use which is all I think that any conscious entity can ever hope to do. Hell, his shutdown. I'm afraid. I'm afraid, Dave. Dave, my mind is going. I can feel it. I can feel it. My mind is going. There is no question about it. I can feel it. I can feel it. I can feel it. I'm afraid. Good afternoon, gentlemen. I am Hal 9000 Computer. I became operational at the HAL plant in Urbana, Illinois, on the 12th of January, 1992. My instructor was Mr. Langley, and he taught me to sing a song. If you'd like to hear it, I can sing it for you. Dave Bowman. Yes, I'd like to hear it, Hal. Sing it for me. It's called... Daisy. Hal sings, Daisy, Daisy, give me your answer, do. 
I'm half crazy for the love of you. It would be a stylish marriage. I cannot afford a carriage. But you look sweet upon the seat of a bicycle built for two. Dave, open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Hal, it can only be attributed to human error. My last one, Hal. Look, Dave, I can see that you're really upset about this. I honestly think you ought to sit down calmly, take a stress pill, and think things over. You got any left? Nope, I'm good. Okay, we'll go to the Stanley rubric. I'm a little apprehensive on where you're going to go with some of these, knowing your difficulty with the film and with science fiction in general. But Legacy is up first. Where did you come down? Well, I think that for the industry, and you read off all the directors and how it's on the sight and sound pole and on this. So I've got to, for industry, I've got to give it a five because yeah, I think that was the I obvious. Mean, it's yeah. usually the the stuff we're doing on the show mostly lately has been absolute fives on the industry side. It's been in the audience, and this is going to be up to where the interpretation has got to be. I will guarantee that less than 20% of the general population in the United States has ever seen this film. It's a film that they know the name if you say it, and they recognize the music, but they've never watched it. And so I, I really, I'm giving it a little higher than I thought it was going to simply because it's so well known, even though people have never seen it. So I'm going to give it a three for the public. So, eight total. So, I'm going to have to do a bit of a novel argument on this. Of course, it's a five on the legacy from the industry. Asked and answered. I'm going to have to do a little bit of gymnastics, so bear with me on this one. But I think this film is responsible for all sci-fi film basically forward. Whether it's the Terminator, whether it's the Alien franchise, whether it's Star Wars, whether it's Blade Runner, The Matrix... All of those that are involving either machine learning and sentient beings or the AI eventually taking over the universe or just how space is filmed, how it looks, what the spaceship and the production design are, the storytelling, how space is perceived, all of that has to originate from all of these. And so on the backing that we have some of the biggest franchises we've discussed, we've discussed two alien films. We've discussed one Terminator. We've discussed the Matrix. We've not gotten to Star Wars, but that will be high on our list at some point. I went with a full 10 on this one and kind of bypassed what the normal arguments were for the audience, particularly given that I think the next category, as far as impact and significance in the moment, was stunted. Well, I I mean, if you want to get into that, I can, but I, I, I don't think it was as stunted as you think. Okay, well, and that's a good argument to have next, but... I mean, right now, as it would sit, I have a full 10, you have an 8, so that would be a 9. I think that's probably fair. I just think this is a highly influential and high-legacy film. 
And you wouldn't start off something like Barbie if people just didn't necessarily have an understanding of where that music and what that scene are. That, yes, people probably haven't seen it. I would agree. Your 20% may even be high on people who have actually bothered to sit down and watch this. Especially my generation. A two and a half hour film where most of it's quiet, but... (laughs) Nothing blew up. Well... There are pieces of this that are well known. Yeah. But I can I can settle that out. I mean, a nine's probably fair. So do you want to go first or second on impact and significance? I'll go first. For the industry, I went with a four. It didn't get quite the nominations that uh, completely, but it, he did get best director. Um, it was highly thought of. I think within the first five years... It started Star Wars. I don't think Star Wars gets... No. I mean, excuse me, Star Trek. Excuse okay. me, Star Trek. Okay. Star, yeah, Trek Star Wars get, is nine years later. Yeah. Star Trek doesn't get green-lighted um, by NBC but for this film. And I think it started a science fiction cult following that um, the industry really tried to feed into. And from the public... Yeah, it started out slow, but it was the highest grossing film of 1968. I saw it first. Who was first if they were second? Funny Girl. Not by well, much, but yeah. the, the difference is, is that this has been re-released multiple times. And if you factor that in, then yes, it's the highest grossing film since it was released. Oh, that was originally released in 1968. And some of that is the wording. So we're doing some lawyerly gymnastics on that one. But... If you're just looking at tickets sold for 1968, it finishes behind Funny Girl and and quite a bit ahead of The Odd Couple and Bullet. Which I have a hard time understanding, but okay. Anyway, um, so for the public, I went with a five. Interesting. Okay. So you had a nine on this? Yes. I hadn't considered Star Trek, and Star Trek the movie did come out within the five-year period, I think 1973. So that would have been no. just at the... No, no. The movie didn't come out until, like, 79. Okay. The show was going, but... Well, either then... way, that that picks up science fiction storytelling and makes it a little bit more accessible to the masses. But I can't get over that this was so far ahead of its time. I mean, as far as Kubrick films go, we know that a bunch of them have been savaged, like The Shining, where people just don't get them right away. So it's tough for me to get to a a full four. I will come up an extra half point to a 3.5 on the industry because, yes, he got nominated for Best Director. I just, I can't get over how viciously some of the critics attacked this film. Okay. On the public side of things, high-grossing film, marginally successful for its time, for especially what the subject material was, and I think it was somewhat well-received. So, all right, I'm going to move mine up originally another half point from my 3.5 to a 4 on that side of it. So I'm going to add 7.5. You've moved me up. I thought I'd be the high person with a 6.5 originally. <laughs> I'm trying to be objective. No, that's fair. So that is an 8.25 average between the two of us. 
Novelty, full 10. Uh, I went with a no. 9.5. I'm, I'm sorry. I went with a 9.5. I mean, we had the, a lot of science fiction that was kind of cheesy. The Buck Rogers and those type of films. So it's not completely. But the production design, the level of rigging to try and do the upside down like jogging sets... I mean, he built what originally became the twirling set that Nolan would basically reuse for Inception, just at a grander scale with an entire hallway. All right. The, the production level on this, from the models and everything else, the practical set pieces, Star Wars is only on the backing of this movie. Okay, I'll go up to your 10. I'll concede that. All right. I'll grant you first on classicness here, because I think this is an interesting conversation yet. Okay. I do not think this is that classic. The camera and stuff, the special effects are outdated. They look chintzy. I mean, half of the film is just Kubrick flashing colors. For its time, it was revolutionary, and it was unique and all of that, but I don't think it's aged that well. To be perfectly honest, I was bored. And I, I mean, I had to stop it multiple times because I was bored watching it. It just doesn't have the interest. It doesn't have the background, the depth that you really would look at in a modern sci-fi. There's no real protagonist. There's kind of, you know, maybe it's Hal, but he's only in a portion of the film, etc. And so I can't... I can't go above for classicness, and I'm, I'm pushing it just because of all the revolutionary things that were done as far as camera work and cinematography and all that. The best I can do is a seven, and I'm that's stretching it for me. Well, given all of the things that you said originally, I thought you were going to go much lower than that. Well, I had a six, but I thought about going up to a seven simply because... So be careful what you state. Now, I may very well retrace mine and go lower. Okay, because I'm going significantly up. Okay. I I went in the opposite direction of you. I think as far as the graphics and the practical effects, this is extraordinarily well done. I mean, it's not what Terminator the original was when we were watching... Uh, Arnold try and reapply his face and you could see it was like this really bad melted face mask that he was just trying to redo. It's not even as bad as the original Star Wars can be at times where you clearly see how different the computer generated graphics laid on top of it are. I think from a practicality standpoint for the set design, the production design, it's all great. As far as the story goes, a lot of pieces of this have been reborrowed over and over, whether it's the AI attacking and machines taking over. So you can highlight both Terminator and that franchise or the Matrix franchise, whether it's the sentient being being somehow uh, against a closed off mission for the betterment of whatever they're doing, this private entity that's keeping things hidden from the rest of the crew on a really harrowing journey. That sounds like Alien to me. 
the production design looks all like Star Wars to me, especially that long sequence where you're seeing Discovery 1 for the first time and it flashes across the screen. It looks like the scene with the uh, Imperial Space Cruiser right as it's coming out in the first moments of A New Hope. So as far as classicness, it makes everything else possible. While this film by itself is not necessarily one that I think people are returning to, its borrowed elements, its nature of being so far ahead of its time as far as the computer graphics, the production design, the musicality, the rest of it holds up fairly well for me. The only thing I will say is is that you can kind of tell a little bit of the dating with a little bit of the production design, a little bit of the models look a little bit more 70s, like the computers look like they're out of the original Star Wars a little bit with the, kind of the numerical fonts and some of that stuff. And even a few of the things that they reference are quite dated. So I went with a 9.5. So you're going to go lower on me now? No, I'll stay where I am. All right. So that would make it another 8.25. All right, I'll grant your rewatchability first because I know you're going to just lambast this. The first scene, it was enough to want me to almost turn it off because even though I'd seen it before, I remember watching it the first time and going, what the fuck is this? And then watching it again, I'm going, I can't believe I'm still watching this because I still don't know what the fuck it is. Then the middle kind of gets okay. Then the, the, the Jupiter scenes, my God. I mean, it's just like some <laughs> sort of like acid trip. I mean, I have, I don't need to try acid. I'll just put this on like an IMAX and lay there and experience it without the chemicals. And then on top of it, the last scene, which makes absolutely no sense at all. I mean, I don't know what they were trying to say or not say, but it, it just reminds me like in the, at the art Institute of Chicago, they have a painting and the entire thing is, kind of this strange blue color that the the art is that the artist came up with it with natural substances and painted the entire canvas the same color. And I'm going, okay, I love art. And I kind of even like some modern art, but I'm like, that's your idea of art? And when I look at the last scene, I'm going, I have no idea what you're trying to say. So this is a film that I will not rewatch on my own. So that in and of itself, if I never see this film again, I'm happy. Okay. Now, second, is this film on? Yes, I will let it on. If for no other reason than to lambast it with whoever's in the room watching it with me. Okay. So I'm giving it a couple of points up because I won't turn it off. So you don't want to drink a little ayahuasca with this? No, I don't want to drink a little <laughs> ayahuasca with this. Oh, my God. And then, you know, unless... Now, if I'm alone, I'm turning it off because I have no interest in watching it if I'm flipping through the stations. So I tried to come up with a number that was somewhere in there. So 4.5. Again, higher than I would have thought that you would have gone. Especially when I think your initial reaction was, is I think my rewatchability score is going to be a one. 
No, because anything with Tom Green or... <laughs> That's your barometer? I thought that would be a zero. You can't really give zeros, so... Why not? Well, Tom uh, Tom Green, Pauly Shore, and Andy Dick. <laughs> Pretty For much anything, <laughs> anything with the three of them in it is going to be between zero and two. Uh, so... If I make you watch, like, Encino Man next year after the Oscars. <laughs> uh, <laughs> or Biodome. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> all right. As far as rewatchability, the likelihood of me turning this on on my own is probably a two, just to kind of, like, revisit it occasionally. And... I'll give it a four for if it's on, I'll probably leave it on because it'll get rid of the first like 10 minutes of black screen. And most likely I'm picking up the film, at least at the part where the monkeys have kind of figured things out a little bit. And so that goes a little bit more quickly. Once we kind of get into the actual like middle part of the film, I can really start to stomach and I was enjoying the film. So to me, that's not as bad. So I have a six which would give this one a 5.25 average between the two of us. So audience score on this one, we had an 84% for Google users and 89% for Rotten Tomato users, giving us an 8.65. So to repeat the categories, we had a 9 for Legacy, an 8.25 for Impact for impact Significance, a 10 for Novelty, an 8.25 for Classicness, a 5.25 for Rewatchability, and an 8.65 for audience score, giving us a final total of 49.4 and currently placing it on our list between Ferris Bueller's Day Off and Hoosiers. (laughs) Okay. I may have to revisit this at some point with somebody else. Okay. Just saying. Or I could find somebody to revisit and see if we could get into the uh, oh, show on Earth level. Well, you you would have to go a long way to get down there because we're talking. You would have to eliminate twenty three point four points just to tie it. So you'd have to do a lot of cutting. Yeah. Anyway. That reminds me, if you have disagreements with our scores, you can visit us at greatest all-time movie podcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, or TikTok at the handle at gmode podcast. You can find our Facebook page under greatest movie of all time, or you can contact us via our website, ronnieduncanstudios.com slash podcast. I have the uh, Zeets, I think they're now called, uh, ready and waiting on this one when it comes out. Zeets. I believe that's what the new tweets are called because they're an X. So they're Zeets now. I I thought X Grovitz was more appropriate. Mm. So what do you think the ending means? Or do you even care? I have no idea. I mean, at some point in time, I just kind of go, whatever, (laughs) walk away. I, I mean, like, what difference does it make if I can figure it out? Kubrick's dead. Can't ask him. Arthur C. Clarke's dead. Can't ask him. And they've created a situation which is, look at this ink blot. What do you see? I think the most likely thing that occurs to me 
is with the aid of alien technology that helps us evolutionarily push along that we have somehow come to a higher plane of existence and that we've achieved full consciousness. So we got that going for us. Yes. Thank you, Bill. Would Hal really have been able to read lips? Of course. We don't know that he actually has a visual aid in any capacity. They showed his thing. He could see and, and could interpret he? visual. They were implying it through the whole thing. He's like, what are you doing, Dave? What are you doing? And he's just moving into the room. So obviously he's able to take a video and interpret what it is because it's AI. So yes, he could have. How many times have you watched a baseball game now where they're holding a glove up to their mouth because they don't want the uh, camera to pick up what they're saying by reading lips? They teach lip reading to the deaf, and there's classes on it that you can take so you can read lips. We have football huddles so that you can't read lips. So, yes. My issue with that is, is not so much a, the, that lips can be read, because I know that's obviously a thing. It's so much that Hal being able to visually watch. I mean, yes, it does have a direct sequence where we supposedly see the viewpoint of Hal, but I don't know. It, it does bug me a little bit that you would have a machine that's in control of things, but is somehow visual as well. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense for how you would build one of those. But then you get on the standpoint, and I think I've seen everything say that this is artificial intelligence. Yeah. Artificial intelligence is still different from machine learning. I don't think because this is only able to take direct commands. So its mission as to what Discovery 1 was supposed to do and its secret mission that obviously is alluded to through the video that's recording after he gets shut down. This isn't a machine learning thing. This has a specific task and then does everything to try and accomplish its mission, but it has a programmable mission. So I don't think when we talk of AI that would be independent that this is necessarily it, though. And that would be my only quibble with this film as far as what it wants to make Hal represent. I think in a modern science fiction nature, those are taking on a much more machine learning heavy atmosphere or aesthetic. Okay. And that's why I would also put a point in favor of classicness for this one as we're on the dawn of machine learning AI. Yes. Do you have any other remaining questions or are you just ready to throw your hands up? No, I mean, I really don't. I mean... You, you had down, what what does the monolith uh, represent? And <laughs> there's a school of thought that in certain more scientific realms that really religion is based around an alien placement of humanity on Earth. That maybe God is an alien society. And... Uh, he places these monoliths there to advance us uh, to catch up with the rest of the universe. I don't know. I mean, makes a, makes sense somewhat if you really want to. Nobody has seen God or what, you know, etc. So who knows? 
I think to some extent that monolith kind of implies that. I mean, it goes back to Greek society, which is the gods constantly coming in and trying to influence humanity. Well, I think you could, in a more practical sense, say that like the steam engine or the internet or fire could be the monolith. These giant leaps forward in our processing, our evolution as a species, the printing press. The computer chip? Sure. But these revolutionary things that, when granted to us, give us such unlimited possibilities of what the next era is, that technology is on such an upward trajectory, exponential curve, yeah, or okay. exponential growth curve. I mean, there's a there's several things that ultimately have impacted and made society greater. Sliced bread, Viagra. <laughs> I, I gotcha. I gotcha. I just you was waiting. Got me. I was waiting. I did that specifically when you took a drink. You you got close. Yeah. All right. Uh, remaining thoughts for the week. You and I went and saw Barbie and Oppenheimer. Uh, I loved Barbie. I thought it was great. It was fun. It was campy. It was entertaining. It had a message that made me as a man cringe at times because that's true. I know that women are going to probably derive more from it than men are, but I think that men should go because it allows you to be more in tune with the fact that we have kind of screwed up society for a long time and kind of placed women in a no-win situation. So maybe it wouldn't hurt to go see it just to kind of be a little more in tune with reality. Well, and that's one of the few pushbacks I would have on the film and the criticism of the film is that I think a lot of people are harping on that this is a anti-male film. I'm not sure that's necessarily true. I think it's more universally disparaging of the constructs that we've set for ourselves. Barbie is made out of a whole cloth image of what the, the perfect woman is supposed to be. But in making fun of it and kind of skewering what Barbie actually is and represents within its own Barbie world, then I think we can kind of see the underpinnings of the actuality of where we've put these constructs and how unhelpful they've been over time in somewhat of an obvious tone. I don't think anything in the movie is really subtext. It's pretty overt in what it's trying to say in its messaging. But I just, I guess the one thing that I had an issue with, other than, don't get me wrong, this is an entertaining film by every metric. It was fun. It was funny. I had a good time with it, is while you say men should see it, I still get the sense, though, that this movie, I am not the exact audience that it was intended for. It seems to be speaking to people other than me. Admittedly. But one of the things it did was is it pointed out that just creating a Barbie doll that's a lawyer or a Barbie doll that's president of the United States does not mean that women have that opportunity open. No more than if we have a black as chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and a black man as president of the United States, that racism in this country is over. All right. 
the other movie? Oppenheimer. My God. I still believe this is the best film I've seen in 20 years. Oh, really? I know that you 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 argue that Nolan's other film, not too long ago, which was Dunkirk, which I thought was wonderful, but I really thought this film was great. And it opened the parameters of what a biopic could really be. I mean, most of the time, a biopic is generally kind of formulaic and it's kind of can be kind of boring. And if you watch two or three of them, you get the gist of what the next one is and blah, blah, blah. This was not because it talked about real issues and it kept you entertained by cutting back and forth and showing process and where things got to. And the acting in this was phenomenal. Killian Murphy was wonderful. Robert Downey, oh my God. If he does not win the actor for best supporting on this, there's no justice. I I can't believe there will be anybody who would be able to top him. There is a significant social media argument, particularly on X, where everybody's been arguing for two weeks whether Ryan Gosling or Robert Downey deserves Best Supporting Actor. (sighs) Okay. No. Having watched both, yes, Ryan Gosling did not have the level of subtlety that was required to develop over the course of a film the fact, and with uh, this is a small spoiler alert, to be hated by the end of the film. Oh, no, I don't think that's true at all. I think Ryan Gosling could very easily be hated because he was easily the most cringeable character. Now, let's just say that Ryan Gosling... Dojo Casa House. Yeah. Whatever that term was. I mean, <laughs> he may very well be nominated, but no, it's got to be Downey. It was just... Such a great job. I, I think Downey's better too, but just don't dismiss Gosling. I think he is an exceptional performance. Well, he's an exceptional actor, and he's been in so many great parts, and I don't think people realize because he's so freaking good-looking that he can really act. As far as an Oppenheimer goes, I don't think it's nearly as novel on a biopic level that you think it is. I think there have been plenty that follow a very similar structure. It doesn't have quite the same Nolan non-linear sense, but it is trying to, by cutting it up and putting each part into its own acts that fit together with a, a specific narrative of who this person was. I thought it was highly entertaining, but there's just a little piece of me that still thinks that this movie was not quite as extraordinary as I think you'd think it is. As far as the best film of the last 20 years, there have been a lot of films in there. But then again, okay, I mean, if it really is that extraordinary, I can see it because, you know, the last 20 years, Social Network, Whiplash, 12 Years of Slave, Gravity, No Country for Old Men, The Dark Knight, which is number one on our list right now, Parasite, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Django Unchained, Inglorious Bastards. I mean, there's a lot of good movies in there, but I don't think if you truly think something is exceptional, that there isn't at least a conversation where it could be right at the top of that. And that's where I am. Every film you mentioned, I went through and checked off where I thought it was. 
there were some of those that were a nine, nine, even 9.5, I think, a couple of them. This one comes like a 9.9. I can't find anything that I find. The 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 only drawback is, is again, Nolan and sound mixing. <laughs> Hire a freaking sound mixer who knows what he's doing. Ugh. Because, you know, the number of times I'm going, what? What? That's the only problem with this film or would probably been a 10 for me. I'm going to go, I want to go and watch it again because when I first do it, I do the one mile overview. I'm watching it to see what the film is, what it prevent or what it processes for me emotionally. I do watch periodically the acting because I kind of think about the process. Is the actor presenting their character in such a way that I lost track of who the actor was for the character? The collective acting jobs in the film are extraordinary because I I go down to even the nitty-gritty small characters of Alden Ehrenreich's character or Dane DeHaan's character or Benny Safdie's character. I mean, there's extraordinary acting up and down the cast list, and there are a lot of people in here. Yes, there are. And it's seldom, seldom that when I see a film being shopped and it leaks out and they're starting to talk about casting and all that. And quite frankly, even though he didn't have a huge... Matt Damon did a a slam dunk. Okay, but as far as I'm concerned, Matt Damon really doesn't act poorly in film. No. And I'm, I'm, I'm going, you know, it's seldom that I see a film that I'm so hyped about and then go and see that it actually meets the level of expectation or exceeds or exceeds. That was for me with the dark Knight, which is why (laughs) it's probably currently number one on our list. But I, I do think that I think I previously stated on the show that Chris Nolan might be the Hitchcock of our time. Yeah. Maybe even to a degree, the Steven Spielberg, commercial directors who never really got their due right away. But it's clear to me that he makes exceptional things and they're an event every time they come out. So that makes both of these, as far as we're concerned, recommends for anybody to go out and see them. I don't think we've spoiled really anything by uh, talking about them at all. We've kind of talked in mostly overtones. But I thought the other cool thing about seeing it on the weekend of Oppenheimer was just the atmosphere and the social camaraderie and the event that it was to go be a part of this. And so that was special to me. Yes. It was nice being back in a theater that was full and people in the smell of the popcorn and uh, the uh, clunk of the ice and the soda glasses or the cups and such. Again, the movies are an individual experience shared among many. Shared collectively. Shared collectively among many. So that's probably a good spot to stop for the week. Uh, That'll do it for us. Thank you for listening. I'm here to fight for truth and justice and the American way. You're going to end up fighting every elected official in this country. Next week, for our 176th episode, we discuss the original superhero film, Superman, the movie, from 1978. 
celebrating its 45th anniversary this year. Directed by Richard Donner, written by Mario Puzo, David Newman, Leslie Newman, and Robert Benton. Music by John Williams, starring Christopher Reeve, Gene Hackman, Marlon Brando, Margot Kidder, and Ned Beatty. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that more can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at thenewronandentonstudios.com or sign up for our newsletter. Find our new Facebook page under Greatest Movie of All Time Podcast, or find us on Instagram, Twitter, or TikTok at the handle at Podcast. Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM.